0: Hello, and welcome to Ayer Thinker, where international affairs are discussed. I'm Martin Zubko. Today, we're going to speak about the Belt and Road Initiative. I'm interested in this project because there are many books, uh, many publications about the project, but also not much about practicalities, how this project is developing and what's the opinion in China. Today I'm joined by Ivo Ganchev. Ivo, hello. Hi, Martin. Ivo is a consultant, executive and academic who divides his time between London and Beijing. He has advised international companies and institutions on the strategic engagement with China as well as Chinese companies on their global brand strategy. He was serving as the vice chairman of the Bulgaria-China Chamber of Commerce and as a global partner at Top Brand Union. After completing his master's degree at the London School of Economics and Political Science, Ivo went to China and defended his PhD at the Peking University. He wrote his thesis in Chinese, so that proves that he's quite knowledgeable about the China and Chinese culture. Ivo also publishes uh, in journals, in academic journals, like Strategic Analysis and World Affairs. And also he was teaching at the Queen Mary University of London and Beijing Foreign Studies University. Currently, Ivo is working on a very interesting project called the Center for Regional Integration. In 2013, the project was called One Belt, One Road. In 2023, we use the term Belt and Road Initiative. So can you please tell us a little bit about this, this development, why the name has changed, how the project has changed during those years? Because basically what we have is 10 years. So let's do some good introduction for our students and international audience.
1: Of course. well, It's a pleasure to be um, here, Martin, speaking to you and to our audience. And uh, to understand the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, first of all, I'd like to take you back a little bit before uh, 2013, because there were uh, many Chinese projects increasing in number and size. abroad starting from around the year 2000. So that's when, uh, Jiang Zemin, um, launched a policy that was called the going out policy. And this is where sort of, um, China's international engagement really started to evolve. Um, as far as I've, figured out. Um, Later, the um, um, name got changed because the idea of One Belt, One Road sounded perhaps a little bit too uh, scary to some of the partners or a little bit too ambitious, or some would say imperialistic. But um, the way that uh, this came about was um, looking back at sort of the going out era, um, things were sort of liberalized in China, and companies would go out in different directions sometimes they it would be their first experience engaging abroad they would face some problems and then during the xi era uh, the xi jinping era um, everything started getting a little bit more organized and he tried to sort of um, systematize it a little bit and put it under uh, one big umbrella Um, and this started in the context of sort of 13 years of going out before that from around the year 2000. Now, there's political context here as well, um, which is that China was getting richer at the time, but it wasn't really, um, according to many analysts, contributing enough to uh, the international system and the international community. So uh, for people that have been studying China for a long time... um, you might remember that at the time there were conversations about whether China is a free rider, for example, in the um, global economy. But nobody asks this today. So the conversation has fundamentally uh, changed since then in the past uh, 10 years or so. At the time, a lot of the um, classes about Chinese foreign policy, when you look at what scholars were teaching at universities, focused on. Um, on things such as the the political troubles uh the um south china sea the diaoyu islands or senkaku islands and the conflicts between china and japan so at the time um there was this uh sort of need for china to try and shift the conversation or to do something that uh, contributes to uh, if you wish uh, the international community or, or global public goods and then this is a point at which um, Xi Jinping is this uh, ambitious new leader who also wants to propose an idea of his own. If you look at Chinese leaders um, in the sort of modern era since Mao, you can see that all of them have had these um, sort of uh, signature policies after they come to power and they try to sort of um, shape um, their legacy um, since roughly you know, the start of their their, their uh, tenure in power. Um so this is the context in which the the bri emerged but when it started i'm not really sure if um if uh, beijing policymakers knew how successful it would be because there are many uh policies and initiatives and and, I, and, and sort of um concepts also that china puts um, puts forward for example at the time xi jinping also put forward the chinese dream uh, but in reality today, almost nobody speaks about the Chinese stream. So this was kind of an experiment with, with no real outcome. But there are successful experiments as well, not just the Belt and Road, but things like the Confucius Institutes. When they began, this was a small project, but today we can see that, uh, that, that they're around the world and you can say what you want about them. But at the end of, the, end of the day, there's demand for them. And they do, for instance, help uh, Chinese, uh, help foreign students uh, come to China. And in this context... I can tell you that with a very high degree of of certainty, um, uh, uh, we could be sure that the BRI evolved through sort of trial and error. It wasn't something that was sort of predetermined to succeed or to fail. And a part of the reason why Chinese policy develops in this sort of experimental way is that this generation of Chinese politicians um, is not in a position of having extensive experience of managing the uh, strategy and foreign policy of a great power. So even if they're second generation or third generation politicians or, or communist party members, uh, their uh, parents would not have had to manage the types of of, of, uh, of problems that they have to manage today. And they wouldn't have uh, had the resources that they have today. So actually, the Chinese policymakers. Um, and on a side note, actually, when you think about Chinese society at large, a lot of the Things that people do here um, are are things that they're starting for the first time. We have first-generation billionaires, first-generation professors, and so on. And it's the same with politicians. So I'm going to propose the BRI. Uh, They were doing something like this. But what's the BRI, actually? Well, I can give you uh perhaps an imperfect but um sort of helpful parallel from the world of of business and economics and i know that you've uh, you've worked in business as well so perhaps um this might be a good way to look at it when you think about international conglomerates for instance you know if you look at Meta or some other big company you see that they have different products like facebook and instagram and and so on and some of them started before um the the sort of big rebranding and some of them started after that um Some of them were acquired. So so the BRI is a little bit like this. There were some projects that had started before, and they got rebranded to One Belt, One Road initially, then BRI, and some of them started after that. Um, And and the the BRI became an umbrella that unifies uh, sort of China's engagement abroad. But what about its aims? Well, the BRI has officially five goals according to the way that that china has defined them uh policy coordination uh facilitating connectivity um uh, facilitating trade financial integration and sort of uh people to people uh bonds or, or or exchanges and recently they've uh also um since around 2017 started to put an emphasis on on green development and and greening the economy um but more strategically, of course, uh, the BRI has other goals that uh, seek to sort of benefit China in a way as well. Uh, one of them is the idea that China is doing something for the world, contributing to the world. And that has to do with uh, sort of the, the rebranding that I spoke about. There are um, studies on um on, on the way that this works for instance um, uh, alicia uh, garcia Herrero, who is one of the uh, economists um who works on on china very uh, intensively um has found that um the media perception when it comes to china and the tone of the media when it comes to you know china the word china the country china is uh, often a lot more negative at least um, in english-speaking media than it is to the bri um, but beyond that, there's also substantial goals that the, the BRI seeks to achieve. So economically, um, this is clearly a continuation of the going out policy that I spoke about. And um, at the time, around 2013, China had um, overcapacity um, in in uh, construction. So they were trying to sort of uh, place their services somewhere. And if they couldn't do this, this would also cause domestic problems, and unemployment and so on. Um, then there's the domestic sort of economic game of stimulating Chinese companies to, to go abroad very often in China, um, whether you study China or you work in China, you're going to see that, um, the uh, government directs large trends so when the government says something a lot of companies sort of tend to try and follow along this trend and that's the way that they they seek to develop and find new opportunities um and also you have the idea that you want to um sort of keep up chinese uh, economic growth as well but beyond the economy there is also uh political aims um, so the fact that a lot of the BRI has to do with the developing world. This is a, a part of the world where China wants to sort of strategically um, engage with the idea that uh, China wants to position itself as one of the the great powers, one of the leading countries, uh, potentially to uh, rival the U.S. as well, um, as 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 it's uh, it's happened uh, in the in the past few years. Um, there's also a domestic political aim: the idea that you want to show to um, Chinese people that China is capable, it's coming onto the world stage. Um, there's a technocratic game. Um, there's the idea that uh, uh, the Xi administration wanted to start making uh, certain reforms and, and appointments and so on that uh, had to be justified in some way. And one of the ways of doing this was um, through proposing a new initiative, such as the BRI, and, and saying that they do things um, for the purpose of this initiative uh the bri was incorporated in the in the uh constitution of the chinese communist party as well so um you can see that um it's something that's 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 been placed there strategically for political purposes with a a target completion date of of 2049 uh which coincides with sort of the the uh, centennial of the uh people's republic of china um so There's a political side, there's uh, also the the fact that uh, it's named uh, Belt and Road, and uh, it refers to also the idea of the Silk Road, um, which is uh, something that uh, the the government here has tried to do in various areas, trying to bring in um, concepts from ancient thought or sort of ancient wisdom into modern politics as a way of um, sort of justifying the continuation um, and continuity in the in in the in the Chinese state from ancient times to the present. Um, so that's one of the sort of uh, approaches here of the government of um, of legitimizing um, its 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 uh, existence as like the rightful um, ruling government of of China as like a, a civilizational state, if you wish. Um, and all of these aims are, of course, very broad. They're um, strategic, uh, but. We don't see a lot of concrete aims. We don't see a lot of specific aims. So they don't say, okay, we want you to get uh, 100 5G contracts this year to uh, a state-owned company or to another company uh, and so on. And and the reason for this, well, there's a lot of reasons for this, but... Um, the first reason for this is that um, I- I'm not sure if China knows exactly what it wants to get, part of it being because uh, a lot of the decision makers are um, sort of first generation great power politicians, as I mentioned. Um, another reason is that if you set up a specific target, you can specifically miss this target, and then it would look like you're setting up the project for failure. Um so there's a lot of, um, of reasons for this. And I hear, for instance, uh, American strategists who, who are very sort of concerned about the aims of China in uh, the BRI, and, and perhaps rightly so from their perspective. But uh, when they say that they can't pinpoint the aims or the intended outcomes or the strategic sort of considerations of of Beijing, uh, sometimes a part of it is that they're not defined very concretely um, so they remain broad and in this way, the sort of quote unquote success of the BRI hinges or on the overall development of the initiative and the sort of overall impression that it leaves after 10 years, 20 years uh, and so on, um, rather than hinging on specific targets. So this helps to sort of um, ensure that the initiative will essentially be uh, proclaimed a success in the end
0: some people might ask if this initiative as a word initiative is also a document like a strategic document in china that I can read or i can translate to english and i can research how is it
1: uh, there are documents about the bri there is um a document that contains sort of the the five uh, aims that i mentioned uh, it's not referred to as a strategy in china uh they emphasize very sort of staunchly that this is an initiative um the i mean whether you read it as a strategy you know this is it's up to you um i think you sort of have to read b- between the lines to understand what they mean um otherwise what you're going to see is a lot of sort of broadish statements, you have to understand it in the context that it emerged um, in terms of the the sort of um, the problems that China was dealing with at the time and, and looking for a way to solve it. The intended sort of end point of, of uh, sort of trying to get out of this um, uncomfortable place is sort of a, a rising power, which doesn't do much, but th- is under pressure to do something. Um, so i i'm not sure that uh a specific document would tell you um a a lot in a comprehensive way on its own you have to understand it in concept in context and um and perhaps i can link some of the the government documents that i'm referring to um in the description later um of our podcast for for our audience to to check them out so let's let's um, investigate
0: this initiative from a little bit of practical point of view and that's through the beneficiaries. Which companies are involved because we have Chinese companies, international companies, local companies and countries as well. So this is this looks like a matrix and I think you are the best person to
1: explain this. <laughs> Sure. Yeah, there's. you're completely right that there is um, a lot of different types of uh, beneficiaries, uh, countries, governments, people, and so on. Um, When I say people, I mean sort of the, the people who use these projects, perhaps in the end, or the people who live in these areas. Also, when we speak about beneficiaries, um, it's a question of whether we're talking financially making profit from a project, or whether we're talking about uh, the 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 significance or or the importance of let's say a piece of infrastructure which is going to be used for the next fifty or for the next one hundred years, or for example the the trade patterns that it could facilitate. Um, so it's a, it's a, a complex um, sort of a consideration here when you talk about um, beneficiaries. We also have the issue of time scale. Are we talking about who benefits today, or who will benefit in the end by by twenty forty nine, or perhaps even in the um in, in the longer run? Um. So to understand who benefits from a certain perspective, you have to know uh, what you're measuring. Uh, I assume your question in the first sort of instance assumes that we're measuring uh profit or or corporate expansion or or entering new sort of infrastructure markets and projects and so on. So purely from this standpoint um economically uh it's a chinese initiative so um chinese uh lenders uh bear the risk and chinese companies of course benefit the most now which chinese companies have benefited the most in total so far well i couldn't quantitatively tell you with apple Absolute certainty for several reasons, such as the type of data that's publicly um, disclosed might not be uh, complete and so on. But we know, for instance, from uh, the um, Green Finance and Development Center in Fudan uh, that in in the previous year, in in 2022, the latest investments in construction um, have come from large Chinese uh, state-owned companies, and that's been the case throughout the, the 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 duration of the BRI so far. So we had Power China last year, accounting for about twenty two percent of the projects. Um, China Railway Engineering and China, Energy Engineering, accounting for about ten percent each. A group of other SOEs such as uh, China Communications Construction and Sinopec, accounting for between five and ten percent. So basically you can see, um, sort of what are the type of, of companies that, um, that end up doing these projects and hopefully in the end, uh, you know, getting profit out of them, um, financially. Now, of course, since, uh, around 60% of the BRI is focused on infrastructure and, uh, you know, construction companies, uh, end up being the ones that, uh, build it physically for the most part. So, um, these uh, these types of companies are, of course, best positioned to uh, make money out of it. Uh, but over time, the opportunity to um, sort of uh, bid for projects have become uh, more open to private companies and to international companies. It's not always clear how exactly to do that. And for international companies, um, very often uh, this is done now through things like JVs, A little bit like in the early days of China, when China was opening up, there was a time when, for example, if you were a foreigner here, you couldn't register a company here. Um, And now if you're sort of doing a BRI project, if if you're an international company, I can't quite imagine how you would do the project on your own. This would be a Chinese company still doing at least 51% of the projects and uh, and 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 your international company uh doing like the other 49 or or a smaller share of the project there are also uh companies that are uh, sort of subcontractors so they're contracted to do things like um making sure that the project is environmentally sustainable or that it's uh sort of um it doesn't have a negative impact on the community and so on um so these could be external contractors um, there are, uh, companies that have managed to get, uh, I think as the, the largest one that I've seen is sort of a 49%, uh, stake of a project, for instance, in, in Malaysia, uh, for one of the railway projects, there's, a, a private Malaysian company, um, that has got 49% that we can also link as a case later in the description. Um, some large companies have sought to uh benefit sort of more strategically from the belt and roads through proclaiming that they supported and signing a lot of mous with chinese partner companies and hoping that later something's going to come out of it so siemens for instance has done that uh, i don't know exactly how much they've benefited in the end but uh, i've seen their sort of uh publicity about it and, and trying to do it clearly uh for a financial uh purpose um other smaller companies have found their their own ways of, of benefiting sometimes so for instance there's a, a Finnish uh, logistics company called Norman Logistics uh they're, they're a listed company but I still refer to them as a small company because you know they're not Siemens or they're not a Chinese construction company um so I, I still sort of classify them on the on, on the smaller end and um uh, the way that they they uh, essentially make money out of it is they offer services to transport goods via um, the 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 train the the freight uh, train line um, between Europe and China uh, the lines rather rather than the line because there's uh, many of them um, the uh, caveat here is always that uh, the international companies of course uh, don't tend to benefit uh, as much as the Chinese companies uh, at least so far. Um, but I think that, uh, I think that the the projects will become more open to international, uh, players. And a part of it is not just to sort of make the, the, the BRI, you know, um, benefit more types of actors, but you, because the Chinese state wants to make, Chinese companies and especially SOEs engage more with uh, with international partners, learn from them, interact with them, establish themselves on on the global market, and so on. A uh, part of the reason why um, European and Western companies were invited into China initially in the in the '90s, uh, you know, 2004, six, 7, and so on. Um, even before the before the Olympics and before the global financial crisis was because through these partnerships the idea was to um, the, to learn from the Europeans. Uh, I've taught several cases, uh, for instance, in one of my international negotiation classes before um, the, that have to do with explaining what were the, the chinese considerations at the time very often they were not financial um there are cases of you know companies such as uh lafarge uh, cement company uh at the time that would um, uh, wanted to acquire um to, to acquire a, a stake in a in a company in yunnan from the yunnan government at the time um so there were various cultural issues with, with the negotiation but one of the points that that i try to teach to my students is that At the negotiations, the French thought that this was about money. And um, they thought that if they offer the right price, the Yunnan government's going to be very happy and sell them the assets. So they sent financial analysts to the negotiation. The Yunnan government sent high-level uh, you know, government representatives and the governor of the province and so on. So what happened was there was a mismatch of expectations. You know, The Europeans thought we're here to make a, a transaction and the Chinese thought we're here to make a long-term partnership and learn from you. In the end, it, uh, it ended up uh, with... Um, uh, a, a joint venture deal between lafarge and a hong kong company that acquired i think an 80 percent stake so that's 40 percent for lafarge half and half uh in in the in the companies in Yunnan. but it, it sort of reminds me of that uh the way that the bri develops and i think if you you know if you see how china has acted historically in the past its companies government structures and so on that's kind of indicative of how they might uh they might act in the future Uh, so i don't see a lot of these things as um as surprising um also from a a more practical standpoint often it's difficult for international companies to participate effectively in bri projects for for at least you know a, a couple of reasons uh one of them is that the bidding process is not institutionalized. So it's not like an EU bidding process where it's a completely open bid and everybody goes and and makes their proposal and so on. Um, It's not sort of as codified in this way. Um, Also, assuming that there was a clear bidding process and so forth, uh, international companies would have to compete against Chinese companies. And a lot of the projects are in infrastructure. And very often, if you're working in the developing world and you're competing on price uh, and you try to deliver cheap, fast and and you know at a decent level of quality although Chinese infrastructure now is actually very good quality um as of as of recent uh times uh, international companies are going to have a very hard time uh competing on on this uh playing field um so uh, of course uh, you know i don't want to go into uh, a lot of sort of hypotheticals here but uh back to your question um if you um you expand it um, a little bit, you can also think about uh, perhaps some economic regions that have welcomed um, BRI projects. So not only companies, but also um, entire regions. So we have a lot of projects in Central Asia, the former Soviet republics, which is also physically close to, to China and also has countries that are in the SEO and so forth. Um, you have parts of Africa uh where again China has been uh engaging very deeply since sort of the, the Mao era uh you have Southeast Asia which is of interest to, to China for so many reasons uh you know proximity security access to uh, uh to water and so on um so I couldn't guarantee of course that all, all these countries in these regions would benefit equally um but these are the parts of the world where the BRI is is seeking to make um, more of an impact on the whole. Now, on the flip side, when you think about infrastructure, it connects point A to point B. So if point A is abroad, then point B is often in China. So you have to think about regions in China as well. So the link from Xinjiang to Guadalajara, for instance, to, to, to the port in Pakistan, um, the train stops of the the EU-China freight train in, in, in Xi'an, in Chongqing, in, in Zhengzhou, uh, in Chengdu, in Yiwu. These are the types of links that are being built. And you have areas of China which are still in the process of getting better connected to other countries. Um, and you, know, you have also regions such as Guangxi, for example, which will probably get linked to Vietnam more deeply and so on. These transport links are intended to go to the less economically developed parts of China and to serve as a tool to provide people and companies there with with greater economic opportunity. So uh, when you think about it, uh, there are sort of different types of of, of beneficiaries. Uh, You could think about uh, companies and who makes money. You could think about um, the Chinese companies, international ones that could provide perhaps add-on services or subcontractors. You could think about regions uh, outside of china countries in these regions specifically you can think about regions or provinces within china which are trying to establish uh links for 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 specific reasons with different parts of the world um and and develop as well economically so if you really want to get a fuller picture of, of what's going on and why it's happening you you have to look at um all sides here uh when you consider the beneficiaries When you speak about
0: contracts and all the BRI initiatives and and activities, it's super complex. So there are two follow-up questions. The first one, do you have in China something like department or ministry or or someone who is in charge of this BRI? And the second question, when you were mentioning all those contracts, Are those contracts list in any form? So, for instance, I can click on, let's say, BRI and Indonesia, and without any financial details, I can at least see what's going on in that part of the world. I mean, how transparent is that?
1: Yeah it's a good question. I mean the the direct answer is um there's no single office uh that's that has you know uh, a big logo saying BRI and you walk in and you can talk to somebody. Uh there is a the government portal which doesn't have detailed information on um, all of the projects. I'll link this in the description as well. Um it's uh, sort of a, a network of of different um actors that end up uh, taking decisions related to the BRI and, and the BRI projects. Um, this has, of course, plenty of implications, this uh, diversification of of actors and this um, decentralization in a way, uh, which it might sound a little um, confusing or even um, sort of it might not make sense initially that a centralized strategy is often decentralized, but the way that uh, operational decisions are made uh, often have to pass through a network of institutions. And um, there are various reasons for this. Uh, one of this is that, well, it, you really cannot quite coordinate it administratively. So it's so complex that you would have to engage with different departments. And if you just make everybody uh, you know, uh, follow on a decision immediately without um, sort of their input into it, you're going to risk a lot of big blunders uh, because there's a lot of things that you could easily overlook. Um, A lot another implication is that companies uh, cannot really go and, you know, learn about all the projects that they can participate in. Often they have to make their own personal connections with somebody in China and talk to them about potential opportunities. Or if they're big companies, perhaps they have an office here and so on. Uh, It's very complex if you're a small company, because then you don't have the resources to sort of dedicate to these types of, of things. Um, as to why there's no database with these types of projects officially, um, perhaps it's uh, not to give potential ammunition to critics of China, or perhaps uh, it could be for other reasons as well. Uh, perhaps it's also because the BRI could change over time, and uh, you know, if, if something gets publicly announced, but then it doesn't happen, it could also pa- pause a, a problem. Um, there are scholars that have tried to um, study the different types of actors, there's um A good article by uh, Minye from Boston University, who's tried to divide the actors into different groups. So you have, according to her framework, you have political leadership, you have bureaucracy, uh, you also have uh, sort of the economic arms of of the state, uh, and she sort of tries to account for for their motivations and so forth. so, uh, you know, there are people who have tried to do this work sort of in a more systematic manner. If you engage with the, uh, the BRI on a practical level, um, then you don't care about the conceptual definition so much. You care about specific actors. So at the very, very top, you have uh, the state council. The state council oversees all the ministries and special commissions in China, a very high level political body. Um it also establishes sort of the um, general blueprint for uh, outward uh, investments uh, coming from China, especially things like large um, overseas investments of over two billion uh dollars they must be approved by by the state council so this is sort of the um the highest level of um of, of regulation here but of course you'll never interact with them um they're they're just sort of uh trying to manage everything in terms of a uh, general vision you have a um Um, A lot of uh, um, uh, other bodies, you have the Central Bank, the People's Bank of China, Uh, you have ministries such as the Ministry of Commerce, which has to approve um, certain FDI uh, projects, Uh, you have the Ministry of um, of Finance, which... um, allocates um allocates uh, funding sometimes as well you have the national development and reform commission the ndrc which is probably um the body that's closest to what you might be looking for it develops ofdi goals and policies uh formulate sort of medium and to long term plans um related to China's uh, going out strategy in general and, you know that's been uh it's been like that since uh, way before uh, the belt and road um so perhaps this is th- the closest to to what you're um asking for but it's by no means you know uh, an institution that just proposes projects and then people uh end up following, following up on them um i've well i've had the opportunity to talk to uh, a lot of people that work, for instance, for the big SOEs here. Um, some of the projects that have been proposed in the past as a part of the Belt and Road were just proposed by the company because uh, the, the SOEs here in construction, they have um, sort of branches and and uh, well, branches, probably a bit of an exaggeration, but, you know, they have offices in different countries that have staff that is sort of stationed there on rotations. Um, so they get to sort of interact with people there on a daily basis and they could uh, talk to um local actors and if they get to a point where they talk to somebody in local government then they could you know get a, a question from them and, and take it from there and see if that can turn into a project so the um the, the soes of course play a big part in in uh, sort of uh, pushing forward projects because they're ultimately the ones that um that end up doing them uh at the executive level you have the you have the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. It has, of course, a limited role, but more on on the diplomatic side um, of things. Um, you, you have sort of other uh, regulatory commissions, agencies, and so on that uh, might deal with with insurance or or, uh, or other things. Um, administration of, of foreign exchange, for instance, would also be relevant. Uh, it's complex, but the point here is that um, all of these actors are, are engaged in the process and these are bureaucratic structures. And if uh, our audience has ever worked with bureaucratic structures, which I'm seeing, I'm sure a lot of them have, uh, then they know that these bodies have their own sort of realms of, of regulation. And you know, who's, is responsible for what and you don't want to trample on their territory too much because that can create for instance you know internal friction between different agencies or or ministries and banks and so on so um, what happens in the end is that you you end up with this uh with this sort of complex uh network of actors now when you ask about the projects you're asking about um sort of whether you can find a, a list of the projects and this is something that um uh that a lot of uh usually western institutions try to do they try to monitor um they try to monitor projects um, that china does uh or that are part of the bri um there is an a, a project called uh reconnecting asia if i remember the name correctly um which is done by one of the american think tanks um Oftentimes, the the highest quality of sort of mapping projects or financial data still comes from U.S. institutions. I can tell you from experience, there's a lot of people in Beijing who are studying the BRI, Chinese scholars who still refer to the U.S. think tanks for data uh, just because they map it so nicely and so neatly and it's interactive and it's uh, sometimes even animated and so on. Um, So. There are organizations like that that try to map projects. Um, th- 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 there are others as well. Uh, but generally, it's, it's these types of, um, of databases that are most user-friendly. And, and that would be something uh, students or, or anybody else interested in sort of getting an overall picture can, uh, can refer to.
0: Let's go to a very simple question. And that's the funds. Many people think that BRI is funded by the state budget of China. Is this true or is it not true? Can you clarify few, with a few sentences about the funding, please?
1: It's funded through a variety of sources. Um, the funding um, comes from different types of sources. Uh, one of them that was designed specifically for the BRI is called the Silk Road Fund. That's um, basically a sovereign wealth fund. Um, and it's not that big. It's about 40%. Billion, which um, you know, when you compare it to the one trillion, roughly of, of the cost of all projects, it's not that much. That's about four um, percent. It was created about a, a year after the BRI started. Um, it's not an aid agency. It's looking for profit for sort of return in the midterm and long term. It's um, it's owned by Chinese financial institutions. Um, such as the the Exim Bank, uh, the State Administration of Foreign Exchange, China Development Bank, and so on. Um, a part of the um, sort of uh, initial uh, fund was also invested in some of the uh, the flagship projects, such as the the Mombasa Nairobi uh, railway in Africa, which then became successful. I'm sure that's a part of the strategy of making sure that the Silk Road Fund is is investing in some of these successful projects, even though it's not it's not that big as a part of the whole initiative uh, then the same financial institutions that hold a stake in the uh Silk Road fund um so China Development Bank China Exim Bank specifically the banks here um they've been traditional major lenders internationally way before the BRI so they're they're also major um actors of providers of, of funding um you also have commercial banks such as icbc uh china construction bank the agricultural bank of china and so on they um they sometimes fund projects jointly uh perhaps to uh sort of uh de-risk a little bit um, so uh, for instance uh in indonesia you have the 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 Uh, Jakarta Bandung Railway, uh, I believe, which was uh, jointly funded by Bank of China, by China Development Bank, and by one more of the other banks. Um, you have, um, in addition to sort of these um, th- these three types of sources of uh, funding, you have multilateral financial institutions. Uh, more specifically, the AIB, which is again uh, an initiative of China, but it's it's uh, trying to uh, operate largely uh, based on um sort of established practices that are similar to those of the world bank and other uh, multilateral uh institutions and you have the new development bank as well um they they don't have a mandate to support the the BRI uh you know they're multilateral uh institutions uh in the the case of the um AIB um you know the, 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 there there's um um, they're investing uh, in projects that are a part of the BRI, but they're also sometimes investing in projects that would sort of support the the general patterns that, uh, or the general sort of types of areas that that the BRI is focusing on. So in that way, you could say that they are supporting it. Both directly and indirectly, but again, I, I you couldn't say that this is directly necessarily you know linked to um to to to, to the the big strategy of the initiative if you believe that there is one. Uh, and the the amount of funding that's come through these multilateral institutions is uh, I think only a little bit more than the the Silk Road Fund. It's just about over forty billion U.S. dollars to date. So that's again around four percent of the whole funding. Um, so overall, when you when you look at it in a in a comparative perspective you see that it's really the the big Chinese banks institutional ones and commercial ones uh that are really funding the BRI but you do have these other sources such as the Silk Road Fund and multi institutions partly because you you don't want to have this purely being something that's uh you know uh fully coming from from, from Chinese banks without engaging any other actors now these uh institutions and specifically you know focusing on on chinese banks uh they offer different types of loans so here we're talking mostly about loans um there's zero interest loans so they're kind of offered as aid um they're you know used for projects that are um considered strategic or have sort of a high degree of, of political importance um and, and you really wouldn't be able to finance them in any other way so um, the the, the China Pakistan uh, economic corridor, the uh, port in in Sri Lanka that uh, you know that's become notorious um has been uh, funded through 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 this type of um, of zero interest loan. Um, then you have uh, concessional loans concessional loans are uh, offered at a lower interest rate intended for uh, large infrastructure projects. Um, they they are uh, used for projects that have a high degree of sort of uh, commercial viability, but they uh, cannot necessarily attract funding from other sources. So, um, for instance, the the Jakarta um, Bandung high speed railway high speed railway that I mentioned before uh, is is funded through through essentially a concessional loan. Then you have commercial loans, uh, which are in fact the most common ones. And uh, this is just in line with what you would get from a typical uh, private bank. Uh, so they're at market interest rates or, you know, around around that level. Um, they're typically used for projects that have a, um, a high degree of commercial viability um, and uh, that can also attract funding from other sources potentially. Um, so some of the sort of more successful ones, such as the the, the, the Mombasa-Nairobi Railway, which I mentioned as well uh, in Kenya, uh, is funded through uh, this type of, of commercial loan. Uh, clearly, it is uh, sort of commercially viable based on, based on its success. So when you try to um, evaluate Chinese funding or when some scholars try to, for instance, criticize Chinese funding, um, you have to consider what kind of loans you're talking about. Um, often what's criticized is... Uh, the commercial loans and they are uh, not transparent because that's a part of the nature of a commercial loan. If you take um, a loan from a, from the World Bank, which is not a commercial, um, then the, the World Bank would have to uh, reveal the details about the loan because this is uh, its obligation. Its members are states and they require transparency. Uh, international institutions work like this by design um then commercial banks are exactly the opposite if you're a commercial bank it is your obligation to be confidential it, this you know because you have to be confidential to the client just like if you went and took a loan from a bank the bank wouldn't release this information publicly you know that's a bit of a simplifying simplifying uh you know example that simplifies things but it it explains a part of why there's this um transparency concern. It's because commercial loans are non-transparent by design. Um and in a in a nutshell I'd say, you know, that's uh that's sort of how the, the funding of, of BRI projects works.
0: That was fascinating to listen because I like, I think there are so many elements and you know, I think the perception in the west is mostly that China is financing everything, meaning Chinese state budget. But when you consider all the actors that you mentioned, you know, the the picture is different because as you said, you know, commercial bank the first priority is client protection. You know, no matter matters. We we have this notion, you know, coming from Swiss banks from the history, you know, the the protection of clients. So so this is how it works. But I want to ask you, what's your opinion about Sort of dividing issue, which is a debt diplomacy, or or using money as as a trap, because we have people who think China is doing that, and also we have research papers confirming, or you know, sort of like stating that China doesn't do this. So from your practical point of view, because you're dealing with those people, what's your personal opinion?
1: Well, debt diplomacy or, or the so-called um debt trap first of all uh explaining um sort of what it is 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 that um this is um trying to um trying to sort of argue that um china is purposefully designing the deals in a way that would make it impossible or very difficult for uh the target countries to repay them and um because of this China would end up uh, taking hold of strategically important assets on purpose. Now, from my viewpoint, this is uh, clearly an exaggeration because there is both a logical um, sort of uh, reason for this and also a a practical one that sort of uh, would make this very, very, um, very... um, very much sort of not viable. Now, the uh, if you believe that China has a master plan to get everyone in debt and dozens of countries are falling for it, first of all, you're assuming that the governments of these countries are either systematically incompetent, we're talking about dozens of countries, uh, or they're deeply corrupt. And this is happening on sort of a global scale over a long period of time if you assume that first of all this is a bit of an insult to a lot of the governments around the world um this also can't be china's approach because it would cost so much on a global scale that uh, you know it would require massive coordination between departments and ministries to allow that and also it would require all of them to essentially agree with blundering these tremendous amounts of money um Plus, as far as I'm aware, from a practical perspective, in the majority of cases, there are no major uh, repayment issues, really. Uh, so there's a lot of reasons why I think the, the argument China is systematically pursuing this type of policy it can't really stand. But having said that, we know that there are you know, some problematic cases. There are usually standalone cases like the port in, in, in Sri Lanka. So what should we make of this? Well... If any lending institution is working with developing countries, first of all, you know that at some point you're going to run into repayment problems. Um, So uh, that tells you um, a few things. It tells you, first of all, that, that it would be good for the countries that take loans uh, both from China and from other institutions to make sure that they spend a good amount of time negotiating the repayment conditions conditions and, and clauses that relate to uh, defaults, bankruptcy, uh, potential for renegotiation, uh, and so on. Because if there is a, any deal of lending money from a bank or even from another entity to somebody else, generally you know 99.9% of the time that the conditions are going to favor the lender because the lender is giving you the money in advance uh so in this way the, the 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 conditions are there to protect the lender it's your job to try and negotiate them down or to think well can i really accept this um and then the, the second thing is that these countries should also make sure that the projects they're planning for are at least to a considerable extent um, viable either, you know, commercially or strategically or or as some kind of an investment. And if they're not, there's many things you can do. You don't have to cancel the project. You can scale it down, for instance. Or if you're building a railway, you don't have to build a high-speed railway. You can build a railway that goes up to 160 kilometers per hour instead of uh, 300 kilometers per hour. And on that point, what, what I think is that if anyone wants to do something meaningful about this potential issue, whether you're you want to criticize, you know, um, b- b- China or practices of sort of um, debt that's not serviceable, or whether you want to help off, whether you're a policymaker and so on. What you want to do is you want to actually uh, make a, a, a more practical and careful argument or recommendation, rather than uh, simply, uh, uh, you know, declaring the whole um, initiative of, of the Belt and Road um, unviable. Um, so there is a, a distinction here um, that 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 should be uh, made between um, sort of a debt trap or a debt diplomacy and individual um cases on their own right Uh,
0: there is a byproduct question that I'm, i'm just thinking about now is there bri investment banking as a subject at chinese universities because i mean it's so complex and you need people who can do actually the job so just you know like like have you ever heard about like bri investment banker in china
1: it's a good question uh not really also also in terms of you know so let's say the aib i i've um you know it's not not exactly bri but you know it's a a recent investment sort of multilateral development institution here um the people that they recruit i visited the aib multiple times um and i I know people there the people that uh, they recruit are usually people that um, have some experience in government agencies, or that come from um, sort of the background of uh, management consultancy or, or investment banking, in some other area, and so forth. And and they the sort of entry bar in terms of Age is usually quite high. So you see sort of maybe the most junior people in the institution uh still being around, you know, their late 20s, around 30 years old, and so on. So this means the more senior people, because you need this time to sort of uh, develop in terms of your your seniority, um, the more senior people are just much older. Um, and the one of the the ways that this um this works is simply getting people that are more experienced uh to do this job. Uh, similarly in um, in general in in big companies in China growth personal growth professional growth is uh is slow in the system. Uh, it's also one of the reasons why uh when you talk to somebody who's young and successful in China um you know that they might be viewed with uh, a lot of skepticism um in society uh just because it's it's assumed that you have to be older and have more experience this also goes to the the way that uh, the whole go- country is governed you know you see the 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 top political leadership of the country uh being sort of this group of uh, you know you could even call them elders um you know xi jinping is 70 years old uh, and everybody around him is at a similar age you don't get these young appointments very very rarely you get someone who's 60 rising to like a top level position And this is you know this is something that's considered uh you know uh it's considered uh a rare case and so on um there's there's quite the age limit to the uh, of in the state council and so on, but still, um, generally in society uh, and in banking, um, there is the idea that this experience comes with uh, with age. And universities might possibly uh, think about something like this, but I think it's—I think it would be very niche. And I also think that it wouldn't be recognized as making you capable of doing this job the way that university that's a different conversation but uh, the way that it we'll just make a point and stop here but the way that university is understood in china is that university is a bridge between you being essentially a child and you being an adult and it will help you adapt to society this is the purpose of if you talk to somebody in China who's, you know, kind of reasonably educated and it's an average you know person on the street and you ask them, what does the university do? They will tell you that it helps you to prepare to enter society. This means when by the time you're graduating from university, the, the Chinese mindset is such that, that they think this is the point when you start to engage with society. So even if you studied BRI investment banking, nobody will entrust you to actually do it. You know, you will be uh, maybe you know an intern and then a junior, very junior analyst for the first few years of your career, and then become maybe an analyst or something like that for the next few years. Uh, and then by the time you're you're 30, maybe you're going to be one of these junior professionals at the AIB or something. But um, that's that's uh, that's kind of how it works
0: understood Ivo, the next question i would like to touch on geopolitics a little bit because we had COVID, we now having war in ukraine we have the africa problem with the with the sahel region and and, and many things going on in the world how immune is bri projects in terms of geopolitical
1: shifts uh well how immune is it to geopolitical shifts is uh difficult to say I mean it's the BRI um, the BRI influences um, geopolitics in many ways and it's also uh, shaped by geopolitics itself um, the first of all the, the very fact that um, this the centerpiece of our conversation and you see the BRI is sort of the centerpiece of of, um, of the media, uh, narrative and sort of journalistic interest when it comes to China and the West shows you um, the, the the geopolitical impact of of the BRI. Um, it uh, could potentially. Uh, have uh, or receive all kinds of impacts. When you talk about infrastructure, first of all, which is the the core element of of the BRI, um, you have to think about the the fundamentals of international relations or international politics, which is war and peace. Um, Infrastructure can prevent wars or sort of cause states not to consider them because of interdependence. It can also be used as a tool during... Uh, wars to launch attacks. Uh, this is, of course, not directly relevant perhaps today, but it's it's something that will, in the long term, um, reshape the BRI, or the BRI itself could be reshaped by conflicts that happen in certain places. They could destroy the infrastructure. It could be a target as well. Um, there's also effects of the international system on the BRI, and from the BRI to the international system. The, the way that the BRI's position, I think, tells you a lot about what considerations shaped it and what it wants to um to do in international relations. So, a lot of the uh pillars of the BRI are things like, for instance, um, solidarity with developing countries, which is in a way reminiscent to um to, to to the 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 Bandung Conference and sort of the old discourse of Maoist China and the developing world. There is clearly um a preference for deepening trade and for maintaining you know trade patterns um because uh this is one a force sort of against uh deglobalization and, and populist narratives uh, and it's something that could benefit China and and, and two it's something that sort of um uh, China uh well China really relies on um this sort of this this flow of trade if trade stops China would be a huge loser in today's world um the bri also um effectively tries to facilitate the more multipolar world because if you're trying to help um all of these different regions you know southeast asia and africa and so on with infrastructure you're essentially giving them the tools to dig themselves out of the situation that they're in um so all of this first of all um uh, is not happening only because of what china is doing china has decided to put this forward right now because these things are also a trend of our time um the the deglobalization narrative has started recently the idea that the world could possibly become truly multipolar has started recently you know the idea that china uh can actually act on the international stage is something that's also very recent uh if you look at it you know 15 years ago none of these things would be here so that's one of the reasons why china has started the BRI now rather than later or before and that's also the reason why it's been uh, it's been in many ways welcome. There has been demand for the services that the BRI projects provide. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about it. Um, and a part of it has to do with this with, with, with this um, with, with this timing. Uh, so it's a matter of doing um, the right thing at the right time and positioning your interests in the whole picture. At the um, uh, you know, in the older times when Deng Xiaoping advised China to hide and bide, it's not because he genuinely believed that China should forever hide and buy because that's the best strategy. It's because he thought, well, this is the right thing to do at the time, um. So I think that's um, a way that the BRI should be sort of understood as well. Now is the right time to come out. Now is the right time for us to be uh, more accepted for um, the world to um, sort of develop in this particular direction. And we're going to just try and, and ride the wave of this historical development and try to assume a more central role in it. So I think that's sort of how it's. Position, if you think of it historically in a broader context. Continuing with the
0: geopolitics, there are some initiatives that are similar. For instance, the European Union Global Gateway. Is this even comparable with BRI? What do you think?
1: Well, first of all, the Global Gateway is something that um, I think we also have to understand in, in, uh, in context. The fact that the EU feels compelled to come up with this tells you that the BRI makes others try to adjust their approach and, and become more sort of quote unquote competitive, even though it's not direct competition, let's use this word um, sort of vis-a-vis China. But um, the EU is actually very late to the game. I think in this instance, um, when you um, look at the, the context of uh, um the 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 global gateway vis-a-vis the bri one of the regions you want to look at is africa because that's actually where the about half of the the funding of the global gateway is supposed to be going um this is a region where a lot of the infrastructure that's uh that's there was actually developed during colonial times and maybe in the early post-war years and and the the west Um, infrastructure they are partly because didn't have um didn't have a lot of interest in that uh, for practical um reasons um so the the fact that there are multiple sources of funding go africa through these different initiatives is of course a positive uh, development for the african countries um themselves there's a lot of um other regions that also have similar vision so the eu uh uh global gateway initiative is one of many uh initiatives that are going on around the world that are trying to satisfy this this demand for infrastructure there's Japanese initiatives. Japan has sort of long tried to rival China and to increase sort of its high quality of its the high quality of its services um, and so on, which is kind of what the EU is doing um, as well. You have uh, India, which has its own vision, although for now it's focused on its uh, developments um, domestically uh, in terms of connectivity. You have uh, Russia, Turkey, Southeast Asia, its a master plan, uh, quote unquote. There's a lot of ASEAN plans that refer to uh, the word master plan. This is the master plan for connectivity that are sort of similar so the global gateway is sort of coming up in this in this context The the global gateway is an umbrella concept in this way it's just a little bit like the BRI so this tells us that also the EU is now kind of forced to do a little bit of what China did when it launched the Belt and Road. The Belt and Road started by incorporating existing projects in its uh, under its uh, sort of brand. And this is what the global gateway is. The funding uh, that's um, allocated is supposed to be around 300 billion euros. So that's around 320 billion US dollars uh, to try to use the same currency as, as, as the BRI uh, with its one trillion. Um, some commentators have mentioned that uh this is uh, an amount of money that's sort of not on par with the bri but actually on an annual basis it's uh it's not that different if you try to divide the funding uh of 320 million us dollars along the five or six years that that it's supposed to be sort of um d- deployed um it ends up at about the, roughly the same amount of money as as the bri a little bit less but um but you know comparable um and, um, overall, um, there's the issue of, uh, branding and sort of perception and the global gateway is a lot of, uh, well, it's many years behind the BRI. Um, so it's, uh, uh it's going to try to play catch up. Um, I don't think this will happen because it's very difficult to generate the sort of momentum that, that snowballs. Um, I'm also not sure how it will develop a lot of the Global gateway projects are pre-planned, so they're not um, sort of uh, specifically, uh, you know, designed. They're just sort of combined into this uh, under this this uh, umbrella. Uh, I know to date only about a couple of projects that have gone through. One of them is fiber optic uh, cable from. Northern Africa to Southern Europe, I believe. So that's trying to increase the the, the connectivity between sort of these um, geographically relatively sort of close regions. Another one that I know of is a hydro project plan in Tajikistan, which uh, sort of aims to reduce the dependency of Central Asia on Russian energy has to do partly also with uh, geopolitical considerations in terms of Russia, the invasion of Ukraine and so on. So basically what this is doing is it's trying to benefit the US, the the EU economy, boosting uh, its global influence, um, trying to deliver what are referred to as sort of high quality projects, ensuring um, sustainability and so on. Um, So in this way, it's, it's sort of uh, trying to position itself in a field which is slightly different from the Belt and Road. A lot of the Belt and Road funding sometimes um, goes to countries that maybe don't have a good credit rating or that maybe uh, aren't as concerned about the quality of the project because they don't have a lot to begin with. Um, so in a way, that they could end up being Um, complementary and also i'm not sure if they're going to compete directly in terms of the the way that um, these initiatives are pitched the way that europe pitched its global gateway when when it announced it uh, i believe it was uh, last year um is that it's a project that's sort of founded in quote-unquote european values and what this uh means is that it's going to require all of this uh you know transparency and due diligence and account and so forth that comes with, uh, with, with, EU funding. Uh, this is something that might not be viable for some of the, the sort of developing countries at the lower end that, um, that are receiving, uh, Chinese funding. So, and I'm also not sure that, uh, this is something that would be very appealing to a lot of developing countries because some of them, uh, just, don't like the idea that now they have to follow or comply with european values given their colonial history um you've you've heard uh, diplomats saying that they don't want to be lectured by europe and so on um of course it's about money here so uh, they might have to but um it's it's sort of a different type of pitch um, to, to the BRI. And I think that if there is competition, it's going to be indirect. So it's sort of competition for influence. It's not competition to get the specific project that that European and Chinese are for directly. Um, and I think regardless of, of how this um, ends up, um, the BRI will still uh, get a lot more sort of uh, publicity and attention um europe will still remain an important partner um of african countries especially um but also large donor to africa um as well so i don't think that ch- the things will, will will change so much um but you know it's a uh, it, it's good that europe has started to think about this more strategically um because the, the fact that uh that There's just so much behind uh, is something that that they should really start to get concerned about in terms of global influence. There is one geopolitical
0: question coming from my students, and it's basically about three things. BRICS, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and Belt and Road Initiative. And students would like to know if China has one project which is strategic, so it's focusing on it, Or China is diversifying resources into all three projects?
1: These are three very different things. Um, They have features in common. So they support the same type of idea of, for instance, a more multilateral world. Uh, In this sense, they, they do have things in common, but... These organizations, um, the, the, the BRICS and the BRI and the, uh, the BRICS and the, the SEO uh, vis-a-vis the BRI are, are um, a little bit different. So to understand their um, difference, you need to think about uh, the difference between them. You need to think about who is involved, which are the countries that are involved in them, what's their function, right? And also who essentially um, also funds them as well. We've spoken about the year just to recap a couple of sentences it's china led um 60% of it focused on infrastructure uh secondary goals of sort of uh you know promoting uh trade flows um uh, and so on with china's in- uh, broader aims when you look at brics this is a geopolitical block and it it was established as uh, sort of this potential rival to the g7 block so this is um group of countries vis-a-vis uh another group of countries um and and uh what they're trying to do is they're trying to set up the the new uh well they've set up the new development bank but they're trying to develop it further so that's a multilateral uh lending institution which um is sort of uh, a central part of the the financial aspect whereas in the bri the the aib and and the ndb are sort of on the sidelines um and also the brics is trying to um sort of get more um get more countries uh to 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 sort of join it in this vision of um sort of a collective um collective uh mechanism of of uh, developing together and establishing this sort of joint alternative to to um the western led order that exists today whereas the bri whatever you do with it however you transform it it will remain china-led um with the seo the scope is regional this this is the biggest regional organization in the world it's not global um it's basically central asia expanding towards asia um historically it's focused on security cooperation so um this is again different from the other two yes there are dialogues about certain initiatives in terms of the economy and so on Uh, this kind of reminds me of what we see um in other regional blocks in the world not in BRICS and not in the bri the seo uh members have spoken about things like free trade for instance this is something that happens when you have uh, when you have regional blocks like the EU, like Mercosur, and, and so on, it's not something that happens on a global scale. Um, they've they've uh, uh, included things like uh, military cooperation, intelligence sharing, uh, counterterrorism cooperation potentially as well. Um, even though they haven't provided sort of military support to uh, in any actual conflict um you know their pitch is to a large extent you know um security so w- when you try to compare them you know you have this china led global uh initiative you have this multilateral global initiative but a part of it that is hugely focused on um asia as well with russian india china there in this triangle um the, the, the you know which is uh different uh, from the BRI with uh, sort of a, a shared decision-making and so on. Then you have a regional organization, which is more focused on security. So that's a completely different pitch. Um, and I think it's just the that China needs uh, or wants as well, all of them. Um, the, the idea of the BRI is that this is China's contribution to the world. The idea of the BRICS is that China and all of these rising powers now want to seat at the table of sort of uh, global order and sort of uh, big decisions, international politics. The idea of the SEO is regional so far, and it's more focused on security. So uh, all of these things are, um, I believe, different. Uh, they're related in some ways, but they're not sort of um, intertwined. The last question
0: for today's interview, we, I think, explained BRI quite well, but based on your experience, negotiations and dealing with business people, what do you think are the shortcomings of BRI and where China should do more, you know, to proceed to maybe be more successful or maybe to fix some sort of myths that are created around BRI?
1: Well, uh, I've tried to um, speak um, about this to people in uh, various agencies when I've met them through, for instance, in my Bul- in my capacity, um, through the Bulgaria-China Chamber of Commerce and through my other sort of uh, work that relates to government meetings here and so on. And um, I've suggested uh, to them, wh- why don't you consider, you know, institutionalizing things, um, or sort of,, um, uh, making it um, look more like it's uh, this international um, initiative, getting in more people from abroad and so on. Um, I th- what their reaction was that they thought this is a very interesting idea that, uh, you know, maybe we haven't considered that much, uh, but they never took anything like that very seriously. Um, a lot of people, you know, have, have, have said, um, have suggested um, that China sort of makes the list of projects more transparent, the participation process more transparent and so on. Um, I think that they know about all of these potential suggestions. I am not sure that they're interested in any of them. Um, What they have to adjust um, in terms of more urgent issue is something that they're already adjusting, uh, which is trying to make sure that uh, they make less blunders uh, in terms of funding. Um, There are some places especially in the early days of the bri where um, a lot of money basically disappeared Um, even though there is you know this the the debt trap the or debt diplomacy sort of narrative the reality is that if you've given out a lot of money and a country just defaults on its debt uh, then it's a problem for you Uh, it's a problem for the institutions financially it's a problem for the people that took this decision. Uh, I've heard this narrative before from some scholars in the earlier days that um, a lot of BRI officials were, or or sort of, BRI officials is sort of a a vague term, officials that were in charge of BRI uh, sort of decisions had this carte blanche, you know, they had this, um, you know, uh, freedom to make mistakes at the beginning. I i'm sure that this is not sustainable i don't know if this might be the case at the moment i suspect it's not um especially given for instance also where the, the chinese economy is heading right now facing some some uh domestic growth issues uh they just can't keep doing that um so effectively they they just have to um make sure that um that the the projects that are financed um are much more um are, so sort of a larger part of them is uh, is commercially viable and that uh, it's sort of serviceable um, debt. Um, in terms of the way that sort of the the BRI um, is presented internationally, I think that at least things like the actors that are engaged with some of the decision making, um could be uh made a little more transparent there's little potential harm in that because we kind of know who they are um at this moment but you know that this could be um i guess mapped out a little bit to at least um show what might be going on uh potentially when it comes to to you know decision making or some of the processes some of the criteria for these projects could be at least listed in some vague um language. I'm sure that they wouldn't list them specifically. Um, but um they could at least try to to do that. Um but generally um again I, I think that uh what they've done um is something that that um has been done the way that they want to do it. Uh it's not something that uh they would substantially um change. Ivo,
0: thank you very much for your time, for your insightful thoughts and commentaries about the BRI. I think we covered you know, fantastic portion of BRI in terms of practical implications, but also geopolitics, banking and uh, political implications in regions. So again, thank you very much. I wish you good luck with your research, with your activities in international politics, international relations and business. And again, thanks for sharing your insights
1: with us. It was a pleasure to be on the show. Thanks, Martin. See you next time.